I still recall coming home from Haiti in 1972. I'd been gone for four years and three months. As close as it is, I'd never been back. And I recall looking out the window of that plane and seeing the soil of the United States of America. And I want to tell you, there were just goosebumps. The shivers went down my back. There's America. There's our country. After living in the isolated interior of Haiti for that long. And uh, that is not diminished as we visited many, many countries in Africa and Asia and South America, Europe. Um, seen a lot of beautiful things, a lot of great places, but no place I'd trade for the United States of America. With all of its warts, with all of its problems. But I want to urge you today, as we are on the weekend of our 233rd birthday of our country, that we consider the stewardship of our citizenship. Uh, in my pastoral ministry, I usually would teach expositional series from week to week, but then interspersed with some topical. This is a topical message today. I'd, I'd like to uh, urge you to consider the Christian heritage with which God has blessed us and the symbols of our liberty here in America, because all of them have a Christian connection. And in doing so, I want, want to urge you to be patriotic in a way that is part of our service to God. We want to celebrate and preserve what's been given to us. Uh, America has been referred to as a grand experiment in democracy. Long let freedom live. For a Bible text this morning, uh, I, want, I want to guide you to John chapter 8, verse 31, 32, a very well-known uh, portion. Um, I'll try to refer to it again several times through the message. Uh, John 8, 31, 32. These are the words of Jesus. He said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What is that promise predicated on? Holding to his teachings and obeying them. That makes us his disciples. And then we will know the truth, and the truth will set us free. Certainly there are spiritual applications to that, but I believe that there are socially as well as a nation. Uh, I saw somebody carrying a placard yesterday that said, God will bless America when America blesses God. I thought, hmm, that is thought-provoking, isn't it? We want to be in the place where God can bless us. God doesn't bless evil. God doesn't bless sin. But he wants to bless us. We'll look at several of the symbols of our American liberty, the Declaration of Independence, the Liberty Bell, the American flag, the Statue of Liberty, and our national model. You do know what it is, don't you? Our national motto. In God we you missed it. This is your chance to participate, okay? In God we trust. In God we trust. But I'd like to, before we do that, uh, do a bit of a, of a review of, of some of the indicators of our Christian heritage. I'm going to go ahead and say it. I wish I could have welcomed our president back from overseas when he was quoted on foreign soil as saying America is not a Christian nation. To say, sir... Respectfully, you are wrong. History makes it so clear that to share the things I want to share now, examples of the evidence of Christian basis for our beginnings, are so many. It's not a problem of finding some. It's a problem of weeding out so much to pick a few to share. And I want to share some that you maybe haven't 
heard uh, as often, uh, or maybe for a while. Are you aware that the Continental Congress voted to purchase and import 20,000 Bibles, that they could more speedily make them available to the people of nation? When did they do that? Right after they adopted and created the Declaration of Independence. We're a long ways from that today. Our Christian roots are undeniable, and yet in, in defiance of all logic and contrary to uh, honesty, uh, these things are being systematically abandoned, removed from the textbooks of our schools, practically unknown to a whole new generation. I fear that the lawmakers of today, both parties, who are passing what many feel are harmful laws, harmful bills, ill-considered, new taxes, have not only not read all the details of these bills, and when you read how they're put forward, you wonder, could I have read them either before the vote was taken? But I suspect that they have not also read our history, at least not lately, uh, or the heritage or the Bible on which it is all written, or at least not read these things so that they are current in their thinking. That is my concern. Are you aware that Patrick Henry, who is called the firebrand of the American Revolution, you remember the story of Patrick Henry? He was the one who said, give me liberty or give me death. That phrase is still in the textbooks of most schools in America today, but they do not give students the background in which that phrase was said by Patrick Henry. Here's what he actually said. Now, this was at a time when Amer the American colonies were experiencing taxation without representation, and they were ready to rebel at the risk of their lives against that kind of domination by England. Patrick Henry said, An appeal to arms and the God of hosts is all that is left to us, but we shall not fight our battle alone. There is a just God that presides over the destinies of nations. The battle, sir, is not to the strong alone. Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of the chains of slavery? Forbid it, Almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Wow, that phrase means even more to me when I know all the rest of what he had just said. Is that lost to many people today? I submit that it is. Was Patrick Henry really a Christian? We're told that many of these men weren't, weren't really Christians. Well, you be the judge. The next year, 1776, Patrick Henry wrote, It cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians. Not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. How, how clear can we get? For that reason alone, get this, for that reason alone, because our nation was founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ, for that reason, people of other faiths have been afforded the freedom of worship here. Today we're being told that no religion is different than any other, which is a lot of logical absurdity when the Bible tells us that Jesus is our Savior and he said he's the only way to God. Now, we didn't make that up. If we did, people could say, boy, you're bigoted. No, I just happen to believe that what Jesus said was true. And so for us to believe that, we're simply being consistent with the one in whom we put our faith. I wonder how many people know the words of Thomas Jefferson, those that deride him as not truly being a, a man who believed in God, might be interested to read what was written on the well-worn, uh, the inside of his well-worn Bible, well 
warrant. He used it a lot. He wrote in his own Bible, not for public consumption, I am a real Christian, that is to say, a disciple of the doctrines of Jesus. I have little doubt that our whole country will soon be rallied to the unity of our Creator. And you might be interested also to know that Thomas Jefferson, our third president, didn't view the presidency as his biggest job. He said that he, uh, he was the chairman of the American Bible Society and considered that his highest and most important role, part of our heritage as a Christian nation. President Adams, in July, July 4th of 1821, said the highest glory of the American Revolution was this, that it connected in one indissoluble bond the principles of civil, civil government with the principles of Christianity. In more modern times, Calvin Coolidge, our 30th president, affirmed this when he said, the foundations of our society and our government rest so much on the teachings of the Bible that it would be difficult to support them if faith in these teachings would cease to be practically universal in our country. No, not everybody was a true, born-again, Bible-believing, submitted to the Holy Spirit, looking for Jesus to come kind of Christian. No. But by and large, the nation as a whole believed in God. And they recognized if we would just live by the Bible and the Ten Commandments, it would be a better place. That was a consensus. In 1782, stop the presses. Get this, the United States Congress has just voted in another resolution. What was it? Congress of the United States recommends and approves the Holy Bible for use in all schools. Somebody forgot to tell the new guys that that's where we come from. Well, there was a fellow by the name of William Holmes McGuffey who wrote the McGuffey Reader. Most of us have never read that, probably, but we know the word. It was used in our public schools for 100 years, up until 1963. It wasn't used everywhere until 1963, but some places until 1963. President Lincoln called McGuffey the schoolmaster of our nation. You know what Mr. McGuffey said? And the Bible is all through, all through his book that was used in every school in America. The Christian religion is the religion of our country. From it are derived our notions on the character of God, on the great moral governor of the universe. On its doctrines, the Bible, are founded the peculiarities of our free institutions. From no source has the author drawn more conspicuously, referring to himself, than from the sacred scriptures. And for these extracts from the Bible, I make no apology. No apology. Did you know of the first 108 universities established in our country, 106 of them were decidedly Christian, including Harvard. You know, how many of our leaders come, to, come from Harvard? And uh, where it is not uh, PC at all to be known as a Christian. I wonder how many Americans today know that the, the original Harvard student handbook chose as its number one rule for its students, Harvard University, when it was established, number one rule, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, who is eternal life. And therefore, to lay Jesus Christ as the only foundation for our children to follow the principles of the Ten Commandments. Whoa, Harvard, I like to send my kids there. 
That's how we began in America today. We referred to the elementary schools and higher education as well. Revisionists, my friends, have been rewriting history for a good bit of some of our lifetimes to where the vestiges of the things I've just quoted for you are virtually unknown to students in America today. They will not see it in their textbooks. They will not hear it from their teachers. In fact, they will hear the contrary. As Christian believers and as Americans, do we not bear a responsibility to do what we can to celebrate our heritage and to make it known? Suppose a nation in some distant region would take the Bible as their only law book and every member would regulate his conduct by the precepts that they find therein. What a paradise that would be. Who said that? John Adams, president, 1756. A profound warning from Daniel Webster. You know the Webster Dictionary? Comes an original version from him. He said, if we abide by the principles taught in the Bible, our country will go on prospering and to prosper. But if we and our posterity, you and me, neglect its instruction and its authority, no man can tell how sudden a catastrophe may overwhelm us and bury all of our glory in profound obscurity. A wise man. Well, there's more here than I'm even going to share. But again, our text, if you hold to my teaching, said Jesus, you are really my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Friends, I think it's unmistakable to any unbiased student of history that America began as a Christian nation. It's all over Washington, D.C., inscribed on our buildings, and it's in the literature of our history that Jesus Christ is the truth. And the ob- obvious of that, the, the opposite of that, would be not to have God's blessing, to slide inexorably towards not only immorality, and we're on the way, certainly, well down that slope, but also towards tyranny, towards anarchy. Without committing ourselves to live lives that are in harmony with our heritage, we have a unique Christian heritage. Let's do whatever it is we can to, uh, to defeat the lie that that simply isn't true. We can be both Christian and a place that welcomes people from other lands to freely worship as they choose. That's what America says. We don't have to say what we've believed is wrong. We don't have to say all beliefs are the same. Just pick your, you know, it's like picking chocolate or strawberry ice cream. It really doesn't matter. It does matter. And we, we give people the freedom in our, land, in our land to believe something that we firmly believe is not true, but you can believe that if you choose. Eat worms if you like. Uh, we think we know some better ways to do that, but you're free to do that if you want to do that in America today. Well, we also want to look at some of the significant symbols of our liberty and uh, preserve them if we can in our understanding of the basic Christian Uh, substance that there is there as well. First, the Declaration of Independence itself. You ever wondered what happened to the 56 men who signed it? Probably you've you've heard some of the the, uh, stories of their lives. Uh, Five of of these men were captured by the British as traitors. They were tortured and killed. Twelve of them had their homes ransacked and burned. Two of them lost their sons 
in the Revolutionary Army. Nine of the 56 fought and died from their wounds or hardships, disease in the Revolutionary War. These were men who signed a document, a piece of paper, and they pledged their lives and their fortunes and their sacred honor, as they chose to describe it. Those are men of valor. And they did so, if not as a daily practicing Christian, at least as men who believed in God, the God of the Bible, not the God of Islam or the many gods of Hinduism, but the God of the Bible, and brought that to their patriotism. Some of us take these liberties too much for granted, and we, we shouldn't. They can be gone quickly. These men were not wild-eyed, rabble-rousing ruffians. They were soft-spoken men for the most part. They were well-educated men. They were men of means. They were secure financially for the most part. But they valued liberty more, and they would risk it off for liberty. We of this generation must lead a return to the God of our fathers to regain moral and ethical fortitude and uprightness courage to stand for freedom under God. Declaration of Independence is important to us. The Liberty Bell. How many of you have ever gone to Philadelphia and seen the Liberty Bell? Okay. How many of you have ever heard it ring? Good, there's no liars here today. Yeah. It hasn't ring. It hasn't rung in most of our lifetimes. Did you know, 25 years before our independence, the people of Pennsylvania already at that time decided to place a large bell in their new state house, which later became known as Independence Hall. It was to be so large and so finely toned that they felt it couldn't be cast here in America. So they ordered it from England. That's got to be the ultimate irony. The Liberty Bell, we brought it over from England, you know, and we got our Statue of Liberty from France. So uh, we try to do things a little better than than, Europe. So it arrived in Philadelphia in August of 1752, well before independence. And with the inscription that had been chosen, from what book should we choose to put an inscription on such a magnificent bell? Well, what about the Bible? Well, they used to think that's a good idea. So Leviticus 25.10, you may know, is inscribed on the Liberty Bell, proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. And the British were just silly enough to write that on our bell. Yeah, meaning that our liberty was going to come at their expense. Well, the problem was that the bell only tolled twice, and then it cracked, and it lost its tone. So a local foundry recast the bell. They actually melted the whole thing down and should have done it here in the first place, I suppose. And uh, the bronze bell, they added some copper to give it less brittle nature and uh, recast the bell. Now it was strong, but it lacked good tone. Can't win for losing. So they recast it again and put some silver in it. You see some kind of escalation here going on to sweeten the tone. Now it was strong and pleasant sounding. So it was hung at the Pennsylvania State House in 1753. And over the years, they rang the bell. It wasn't called the Liberty Bell at that time. They rang the great bell for special occasions, including the first reading of the Declaration of Independence. That was a suitable, suitable occasion. The next year, with the British on the verge of entering Philadelphia and fearing that they would take the bell and melt it down to make musket balls, the bell was moved by wagon to Allentown, Pennsylvania and hidden in a church basement 
for almost a year. There's, there's all kinds of stuff in church basements. I don't, I don't know. I guess they found some things that were changing the furnace down here uh, recently. <laughs> I haven't heard of any bells. but uh, And so now the bell rang and it, it announced the end of the Revolutionary War in 1781. They could bring it out of hiding. The British were gone. And uh, they rang it for the adoption of the Constitution in 1787 and afterwards for holidays and special occasions, but it didn't yet have the status that we give to it today as a symbol of our liberty. Well, they almost sold it for scrap in 1828, but in 1835 the bell again cracked while it was tolling the death of Chief Justice John Marshall. Um, I guess he wasn't around yet to know what happened on the, on the occasion or what may have been the connection, but the bell then became silent for another 10 years. 1846, quite a history our Liberty Bell has. Efforts were made to drill the edges of the crack for repair, but when they rang it on Washington's birthday, it cracked all the way up to the shoulder of the bell, and it just could not be repaired. We're told that with the exception of Old Glory, our flag, the Liberty Bell has become the most popular symbol of freedom and uh, our national heritage for Americans. More of us should have seen it. I confess I've not been to Philadelphia and seen it. But this 2,080-pound bell, cracked and scarred, nearly sold as scrap, has found its way into the hearts of a nation. It's a symbol of our American liberty. It's been on our postage stamps, and other people recognize it and go to see it, perhaps even more than Americans do. It reminds us again of our founding fathers, who were men who believed in God and quoted his word, proclaimed liberty throughout all the land unto the inhabitants thereof. And that liberty needs to be proclaimed today as a gift from God, who has created us equal, equally loved in his sight. Not equal in talents, not equal in financial ability, but equal in worth before God. The third I would mention is our flag. We call it Old Glory, the beloved banner of American liberty. And, and I suppose if you spent time outside the United States or served in the military, been gone a length of time, maybe you've had the experiences I've had to step on the grounds of an American embassy in a foreign land. And when you do, you're standing on American soil. And I don't know, am, am, I, am I just kind of a feely person to think that I get a little bit of goosebumps to see the American flag in the midst of a land that doesn't have the same freedoms we have? The American flag should mean a lot to us. We've all seen the picture on Iwo Jima of the, of the flag as it was raised and carried into battle by many and needs uh, to be held in honor. The first official flag was called the Continental Flag or the Grand Union Flag. And uh, it had 13 red and white stripes, but very oddly, in, in the corner, uh, some of you will know what was in the corner was the British Union Jack. You know, it's kind of like we want to be free, but you know, uh, we'll, we'll kind of take it in steps or something. But six months later, the Continental Congress adapted the design and removed the Union Jack and all evidence of, of England and put 13 stars in a circle. The flags changed different times over the years. Um, you might not know that uh, it wasn't until 1870 that anybody asserted the idea that Betsy Ross sewed the flag. Uh, that never came up until then. So did she do it or didn't she do it? 
I don't know, uh, but it's a wonderful story about Betsy Ross sewing the flag. Somebody made it, and it's become so important to us. Many variations of our flag occurred over the years. Uh, when Alaska joined the Union, 49th star was added in 1959, and then Hawaii in 1960. Since then, our flag has remained the same. The national anthem is the star-spangled banner. Hard to play, hard to sing, and yet has its historical roots that really are quite wonderful. Um, you may know that some people say we ought to change, change our national anthem to America the Beautiful um, or, or something more, more singable. Uh, there are some folks who were singing, singing our, our uh, national anthem yesterday. It's kind of nice to hear. You know, most ball games anymore, nobody sings, except the person that's, that's murdering the song with the microphone in their hand. <laughs> These people who think they're a committee of one to change our national anthem, uh, I wish to get somebody to sing, sing it, you know. Don't, don't change it. But during the War of 1812, you may know the story. The British had hoped to take Fort McHenry at Baltimore. And there was a large flag, I mean large, this is a big flag that, that um, was 30 feet by 42 feet. That's a big flag. It flew over the fort, and in the morning when the, dust, when the smoke of battle had cleared, Francis Scott Key looked over the bay and, and saw that it was still there. The flag was still there. And so he created a poem. I don't think he ever realized it would ever be sung or given the notoriety that it has today. But most of us don't know that there are four verses to the Star-Spangled Banner. And some of the best words are not the, not the ones that we, that we sing and know so well. I'd offer you just the fourth verse as an example. Oh, thus be it ever when free men shall stand between their loved home and the war's desolation, blessed with victory and peace, may the heaven-rescued land praise the flow, praise the power that made and preserved us a nation. Then conquer we must when our cause it is just, and this be our motto, in God we will trust. And the star-spangled banner in triumph shall wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. Pretty good stuff. Part of our history. Part of our heritage. Linked to our symbols. It's there with the Declaration of Independence. It's there with the Liberty Bell. It's there with our flag as well. And the Statue of Liberty, since 1886, has been standing in the New York Harbor. I guess they just opened up the, the top for people by reservation to, to go up again uh, into it. Um, 225 tons of steel reinforced copper. The base is almost as tall as the upper part, 150 feet on the base and 152 feet of the statue. In the right hand, you know, one, one of those um, trivia Games, you know, does she hold the torch in the right hand or the left hand? Okay, you learned at least one thing here today. Right hand holds the torch, and then the left hand holds a tablet on which is inscribed July 4, 1776, our Independence Day. And even as the cross of Christ lifts high the message of his salvation, giving light and inviting people to come, so also the Statue of Liberty has welcomed to a temporal, temporary earthly kind of peace and freedom uh, offered by our country to those who desire to come. Inside that pedestal is inscribed the words that you've probably have heard at some time, written by Emma Lazarus, a young woman,
who died at age 38, the year after the statue was received. But her words are written for time and immemorial inside the Statue of Liberty. And she said, not the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land. Here at our sea-washed sunset gate shall stand a mighty woman with a torch whose flame is the imprisoned lightning and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that Twin Cities frame. Keep ancient lands your storied pomp cries she with silent lips, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. And thousands, yea, millions have come. Probably most of the ancestors of most of us here came at some time from somewhere else. And we still welcome people, don't we? And very quickly, it was, it was clear that we, they expect people to, were to come appropriately, legally, and assimilate into the land and recognize you've come to a Christian land. You're free to practice some other religion here, but this is a Christian land. That was the understanding until rather recently. And the Statue of Liberty, with that history, is important to us. So similar, in a way, to the cross of Jesus lifted up. I would mention yet the fifth symbol of our, of our freedom in America today of liberty, and that is our motto, in God we trust. Um, you note that Francis Scott Key used that phrase in his poem. It became uh, part of the, of the uh, anthem. But it was not adopted by Congress until 1956. Rather recently, strange actually, because some of our coins as early as 1864 bore that phrase, in God we trust. And it's still on our American coins and our paper money. In fact, I, I, I got out my wallet here today, and here we are on a $1 bill. I had more samples of that one. Um, <laughs> there it is right there on the back, right above the word one, in God we trust. And just to the right of it is our seal, the official seal of America, e pluribus unum, from many, one, or out of many, one. We come from many places, many people, we become one. But I think the one also is God, in, in one God we trust, because the one isn't needed there, it's, it's plastered all over the place. But any, on, on the $5 bill, here we have Lincoln, and on the back, the Lincoln Memorial, and above it, in God we trust. It's over our memorials. It's over our history. It's over our heritage. On the $10 bill, in God we trust. There it is over the U.S. Treasury. Now, that's a place we need to have the reminder. In God we trust. Not in the U.S. Treasury. And, gets better, here we are, in God we trust, on the $20 bill, and it's over the White House. In God we trust to be our leader above all other leaders. Now, I think it's on other bills. There, there, I, I, I've been told there are bigger bills than this, but I haven't held one in a while. <laughs> so I, I didn't bring any samples of those, but um, it, it's very much a part visible if you look for it. The symbols of our American liberty. It reminds us to pray for America. 
The Ten Commandments that are limited in their appearance today were once authorized uh, positively uh, by our Congress to be used in every school in America. We need to return to God's standards, to live by his holy word, to honor God from our hearts, to lift up righteousness, justice, truth, and integrity, and thereby we, we receive God's blessing. We need to judge our actions by the eternal word of God and not seek to change his word to fit our actions, to again honor God as our creator. Academic freedom, it seems today, um, is rife in America. The debate of ideas is held up unless the idea under consideration is something that suggests that there's a God or that what we call creation didn't just happen by its own self. That's a sad day for America. Paul Harvey is gone. I, I think he's with the Lord. I know the man that was his pastor for years said that Paul Harvey would usually travel home late on Saturday night to be sure he was there to teach his Sunday school class on Sunday morning in Oak Park, Illinois. But a few people could say it like Paul Harvey. Paul Harvey wrote, um, If I Were the Devil, maybe you've heard this, I would, if, if I were the devil, I would gain control of the most powerful nation in the world, and I would delude their minds into thinking that they'd come from man's efforts rather than God's blessing. If I were the devil, I would promote an attitude of loving things and using people instead of the other way around. If I were the devil, I would dupe entire states into relying on gambling for their state revenue. I would convince people that character is not an issue when it comes to leadership. I would make it legal to take the life of unborn babies. If I were the devil, I would make it socially acceptable to take one's own life and invent machines to make it convenient. I would cheapen human life as much as possible so that the life of animals are valued more than human beings. If I were the devil, I would take God out of the schools where even the mention of his name would be grounds for a lawsuit. I would come up with drugs that sedate the mind and target the young, and I would get sports heroes to advertise them. I would get control of the media so that every night I could pollute the mind of every family member for my agenda, and I would attack the family, which is the backbone of any nation. If I were the devil, I would make divorce acceptable and easy, even fashionable. If the family crumbles, so does the nation. I would compel people to express their most depraved fantasies on canvas and movie screens and then call it art. I would convince the world that people are born homosexuals and that their lifestyles should be accepted and marveled at. I would convince the people that right and wrong are determined by a few who call themselves authorities and refer to their agenda as politically correct. If I were the devil, I would persuade people that church is irrelevant and out of date and that the Bible is for the naive. I would dull the minds of Christians and make them believe that prayer is not important and that faithfulness and obedience are optional. Well, come to think of it, I guess I would leave things pretty much the way they are. Paul Harvey, 1999. I'm not sure it's gotten any better since 1999. All of that, and yet America is a marvelous place to live. We still have the residue, much of the blessing that God has given us. And he's entrusted you and me with our little part of the American community to make a voice for God heard, 
to be examples in an increasingly dark world. These are bold words from Paul Harvey, and you may not care for everything I've said here today, but I, I trust it will help us to be humble, to pray, asking God to sharpen our spiritual sensitivities to the devil's attacks, to open our spiritual eyes to the subtle presence of evil, to increase our appetite for soul-satisfying presence of God in our own daily personal lives, to draw us back to the God of our fathers, back to our Christian heritage as a nation, to again uphold the things that made us great and that really matter. God hates politics without principle. I believe God hates government without integrity. Doesn't God hate science without humility, a godly humility? I would recognize him. I believe God hates commerce without morality, knowledge without character, wealth without work, sex without marriage, pleasure without conscience, worship without holiness, religion without sacrifice. These things, I think, you find it pretty biblical that are not the things that please God. But that isn't the way we have to go. Oswald J. Smith wrote a hymn, and I'm going to close. Uh, I adapted it some. We, we sang it a few times in our churches, five verses of In God We Trust. I'll just give you the last, the last stanza. In God We Trust, oh, praise his name forever. We sang it to the tune of Oh, Perfect Love. And if I was Pastor Dave, I'd, I could sing it for you. In God We Trust, oh, praise his name forever. We trust in God who saves us by his grace. Cleanse now our hearts and send a great revival that all America may see your face. Father, help us to be good stewards of the liberty you've entrusted to us, to the message of your son Jesus on which our great country was built. Lord, help our young people to wade through all the lies and distortions and the haze of modern thinking to see that there is a God who is worthy of acknowledging and worthy to serve. We thank you for great patriots, for great men and women of courage and valor who have... Um, laid the groundwork to what's been entrusted to us today. Bless, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.